Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Think Cap Trivia Podcast. My name is Kevin, and it is my pleasure to be your host. For those of you tuning in for the first time, let me go over how this podcast is going to work. At the beginning of the show, I will ask 10 trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think over your answers. Then, I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and some commentary about the answer, whether it be some history or data or even some fun pieces of nickel knowledge. So, this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I will give you a brief breakdown that will hopefully keep you entertained while also satisfying your curiosity about the topics. If you don't know many of the answers or get stumped on a couple, just know that I generally try to uh, choose questions that hedge towards being more difficult because they generally just have a bit more background information that I can discuss with you. So my goal is that even if you're not the biggest trivia buff in the world, ThinkCap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your knowledge, to help you learn a little bit about something new for your own satisfaction or even to share with others. The show is all general trivia topics, so you never know what you're going to get each week. If you're a fan of my show or enjoy what you're going to hear in the next 30 minutes or so, I ask that you please recommend my podcast to a friend or to tell a fellow trivia lover about ThinkCap. Getting the word out there really helps my ability to grow and produce more content. And to keep up with all of the content that ThinkCap puts out, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. I post fun facts and historical events and brain teasers, and there may even be some merch giveaways in the coming months, so be on the lookout for that. And with that being said, let me once again welcome you to the ThinkCap Trivia Podcast, and let's get this show started. Alright, so once again, I've got a couple different questions for you today, and what I'm going to do is read each one for you, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then go through and break down each question one by one. So sit back and relax, and let me read these questions for you. Question number one. What short story by Edgar Allan Poe vividly described the torture of a prisoner during the Spanish Inquisition? Once again, what short story by Edgar Allan Poe vividly described the torture of a prisoner during the Spanish Inquisition? Question number two. Who did the United States buy the Virgin Islands from? Once again, who did the U.S. purchase the Virgin Islands from? Question number three, what is the proper name for the Northern Lights? Once again, what is the proper name for the Northern Lights? And question number four, in what country did the Boxer Rebellion take place? Once again, in what country did the Boxer Rebellion take place?
Question number five. Also a rallying cry for 2018's team, England's World Cup soccer team released a song called Back Home in what year? Once again, also a rallying cry for 2018's World Cup team, England's World Cup soccer team released a song called Back Home in what year? Question number six. Which famous author also writes under the pen name of Richard Bachman? Once again, which famous author also writes under the pen name Richard Bachman? Question number seven. What would you be doing if you were suffering from somniloquy? Once again, what would you be doing if you were suffering from somniloquy? Question number eight. Deriving its name from the Latin word for knowledge, what church was founded in 1954 in California by L. Ron Hubbard? Once again, deriving its name from the Latin word for knowledge, what church was founded in 1954 in California by L. Ron Hubbard? Question number nine. From what plant is tequila distilled? Once again, what plant is tequila distilled from? And question number 10, which is our last question of this week's podcast. In the Batman universe, what is the full name of the villain known as Two-Face? Once again, in the Batman universe, what is the full name of the villain known as Two-Face? All right, so that is our questions for this week. Now that you've had a couple of moments to think about your answers, I'm going to go through Starting with question number one, read the question once again for you, and then give you a little bit of commentary behind it. So let's get started with question number one. Question number one was, what short story by Edgar Allan Poe vividly described the torture of a prisoner during the Spanish Inquisition? And your correct answer is The Pit and the Pendulum. The Pit and the Pendulum is the name of the story. Edgar Allan Poe was an American writer and poet who was best known for his short stories that were thematically very ominous and mysterious. This particular story was placed during the Spanish Inquisition, which was a period between 1478 and 1834, where the Catholic monarchs began to began their quest to purify Catholicism by identifying heretics and bringing them to justice. The narrator of the story is a person who is being tortured. He is tied down as a huge blade above him, swinging like a pendulum, slowly descends towards him. The story is extremely effective at conveying the sense of fear and dread that the narrator feels because of its emphasis on the precise description of the senses which he undergoes during the episode. It's a pretty short read, but it really speaks to Poe's mastery of capturing the reader's imagination and immersing them into a world he has created in a very short amount of time. While he did take some liberties with the factual history about the Inquisition, the story ends in a satisfying way, which just makes you want to read more and more of Poe's work. 
Question number two was, who did the United States buy the Virgin Islands from? And your correct answer is Denmark. Denmark is the right answer. The Danish West Indies were controlled by several European powers before the Danish took control of them in the late 1600s. They held them for some time, but in the 1830s, the islands entered into a period of economic decline, which made the land increasingly expensive to administrate for Denmark's government. Beginning in 1867, the United States made several attempts to expand its influence into the Caribbean by acquiring the Danish West Indies, but were unable to do so at first because of political and procedural differences with countries uh, with land in the region. So some years later, Secretary of State John Hay again became interested in acquiring the Danish West Indies as part of his broader plans, which included securing trade routes along the future Panama Canal. But again, he was unable to make the purchase. Then in 1915, after the sinking of the Lusitania, the issue of the U.S. purchase of the Danish West Indies again became an important issue for U.S. foreign policy. This time, the United States was able to get it done, with control from Denmark formally being transferred to the States on March 31st of 1917. After the transfer, the U.S. government changed the name of the islands to what we now know them as, as the Virgin Islands of the United States. And question number three was, what is the proper name for the Northern Lights? And your correct answer is Aurora Borealis. Yes, Aurora Borealis is the right answer. And I'd be willing to bet that everyone has heard of or seen photos of the Northern Lights. It's one of those natural phenomenons that is just so mind-blowingly beautiful that it will capture the imagination of people from all walks of life. I haven't been lucky enough to see them in person, but it's absolutely on my bucket list to travel up north and to get to experience them myself. But have you ever wondered what actually causes the beautiful tones of green to sweep through the sky like they do? I always have, and I'm going to try and explain it to you in a very uh, low-level way that hopefully is easy to understand. So to start, the sun has an extremely volatile atmosphere. There are giant storms on its surface, which can cause great bursts of particles to be sent out of its atmosphere and into outer space. So these giant storms just cause all these particles to just erupt off of the sun and into the surrounding area. So now you have all these particles which are charged, meaning they have more or less electrons than a normal particle would have, hurtling towards Earth through outer space. And when the charged particles from the sun strike atoms in the Earth's atmosphere, they cause the electrons in the atoms to move to a higher energy state or to become excited, to put it in other terms. When those electrons return back to the lower energy state, after being in the higher energy state, they will release a photon, which is basically what we can conceptualize as a unit of light. Those photons being released from the rogue particles appear to us as the beautiful green lights that we see in Earth's northern reaches. So again, you have these charged particles screaming through the outer space. They enter Earth's atmosphere and they hit atoms within our atmosphere, causing the electrons to become excited. And then they will release photons, which creates the Northern Lights. 
So another thing I should add is that the particles only reach this region of Earth because of the nature of its magnetic fields. The Earth's magnetic fields circulate between the North Pole and the South Pole, um, coming out of the North into the South Pole in a large circle, creating lesser forces at the points of each pole, which allow the rogue particles to enter a bit closer and to create the spectacular lights that we know as Aurora Borealis. Alright, and question number four was, in what country did the Boxer Rebellion take place? And your correct answer is China. The Boxer Rebellion took place in China. By the end of the 19th century, the Western powers and Japan had forced China's ruling powers to accept foreign control over their country's economic affairs. In two different wars during the 1800s, China had resisted the foreigners but really lacked a modernized military and they suffered millions of casualties. Meanwhile, in China there was a secret society that foreigners called the Boxers, which were actually called by a name which translates to Righteous and Harmonious Fists. The group practiced certain boxing and calisthenic rituals in belief that this made them invulnerable to damage and there were even legends of members of the group being impervious to bullets. The group's original goal was the destruction of the ruling dynasty and also the destruction of the westerners who had claimed prevalent positions within their country. As they continued to grow in strength, the boxers formed militias which were renowned for their vigor in battle. So much so that the Chinese government became aware of their reputation and persuaded them to drop their opposition to the ruling dynasty and unite with it in order to drive out the foreigners that had claimed their stakes in China. The group laid siege to large cities such as Beijing where they slaughtered foreign people as well as Chinese who had become Christians because of the foreign influence. On August 14th, after fighting its way through northern China, an international force of approximately 20,000 troops from eight different nations, including Austria-Hungary, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Russia, the UK, and the United States, arrived to take Beijing and rescue the foreigners and Chinese Christians who were captive there. The Boxer Rebellion continued on for a couple of months before formally ending with the signing of the Boxer Protocol on September 7th of 1901, which punished China for their involvement in the attacks. Now, the Boxers did end up accidentally achieving one of their original goals, though, as the rebellion actually weakened the ruling dynasty's power, allowing for another uprising in 1911 that actually drove the dynasty to its end, leaving China to become a republic in 1912. Question number five was also a rallying cry for 2018's team. England's World Cup soccer team released a song called Back Home in What Year? And your correct answer is 1970. 1970 is the right answer. The song itself was written by Bill Martin and Phil Coulter and was recorded by the 1970 England World Cup squad who had won the previous World Cup in 1966. So just four years before recording this song, England's World Cup team captured their first ever World Cup victory. And the song itself began the tradition of the England squad recording World Cup songs to celebrate their involvement in the tournament. 
Back Home reached number one on the UK singles chart for three whole weeks in May of 1970. It is a really fun and upbeat rallying song, and it resurfaced in 2018 when England again qualified for the Cup. Now, the team would fail to win the World Cup in both 1970 and 2018, and that 1966 World Cup remains the country's only cup since the team was first included in the tournament in 1950. And question number six was, which famous author also writes under the pen name of Richard Bachman? And your correct answer, the author is Stephen King, is your right answer. Stephen King is a prominent horror author who I have become a big fan of in the last couple of years. And he decided to release novels under the pseudonym of Richard Bachman for two reasons. One, at the time, the general view amongst publishers was that putting out more than one book in a year was unacceptable because it made you look like you were just pushing out content and not really putting your all into each release. And two, King had a desire to see if his books were selling so well because of his fame or because of his actual literary talent. So he convinced his publisher to let him release some works under a false name and then came up with the name Gus Pillsbury, which was his maternal grandfather's name. However, this name was outed before he could release any novels under it, so he pivoted and came up with Richard Bachman as a twofold tribute to renowned crime author Donald E. Westlake's pseudonym Richard Stark, is that's where he got his first name, and the Bachman was a bit more impromptu, but nonetheless inspired by a rock and roll band that King was listening to at the time his publisher asked him to pick a pseudonym on the spot, and that band was Bachman Turner Overdrive. So the first half of his name came from uh, Donald Westlake's pseudonym Richard Stark, and the second half was on the spot. He just came up with it uh, because the band he was listening to at the time was Bachman Turner Overdrive. Now, if you ask King, he will tell you that he has yet to find an answer to the talent versus luck question, though, as people did find out that Bachman was, in reality, Stephen King. And when that happened, one of his 1984 books entitled Thinner, which sold 28,000 copies during its initial run, eventually ended up selling 10 times as many when it was revealed that Bachman was, in fact, Stephen King. And one more funny detail, too, about King's character building of Bachman is that he included photos of his publisher's agent as the about the author photo and later released photos of Bachman's quote-unquote wife in a later about the author to try and keep the image alive that Bachman was this real person. He even had a very on-brand description of the couple's first child suffering a major tragedy when he fell down a well and drowned at the age of six. Uh, that actually didn't happen. That was, again, just King's story building uh, about Richard Bachman. But I actually just finished uh, King's newest book called The Institute, which is about kids with psychic abilities that are kidnapped and taken to an institute to be tested. And it's dark at times, but I wouldn't say that it's scary in the traditional sense of the horror genre but I highly recommend it. I thought it was very well done. I'm starting um, another King book right now called 112263, which is a book that has to do with JFK's assassination that you might be familiar with because of its adaptation into a television show on Hulu. Um, I'm excited to get deeper into that, but I think that I may have to try picking up one of Mr. Bachman's books here in the near future as well. 
And that brings us to question number seven, which was, what would you be doing if you were suffering from somniloquy? And your correct answer is you would be sleep talking. Sleep talking is called somniloquy. Now, when you are sleeping, your body goes through different phases, which fluctuate between what we know as light and deep sleep. During these phases, your brain patterns change and your eyes will move randomly even within your closed eyes. It is during this phase that we typically will have vivid dreams. When your eyes are not moving, it is known as NREM sleep, and this is when you are most likely to sleep talk. And you might say, well, I remember consciously sleep talking during a dream before. That means that I experience somniloquy during REM sleep. And while all motor functions are typically disabled during REM sleep, that is absolutely correct. It is possible to sleep talk during dreams. Sleep therapists refer to that phenomenon as a motor breakthrough, which is a type of sleep paralysis actually but like i said sleep talking usually occurs during nrem sleep stages or during temporary disturbances during that phase i actually remember distinctly having sleepovers with my cousins and we would always pick on the first person to fall asleep we discovered that that when that person was sound asleep if you asked them a question as soon as they rolled over or rustled around they would answer with a typical sleep talk nonsense. So they'd be sleeping there, laying on their back or whatever, and we kind of see them roll over. You ask them a question right during that time, which, like I said earlier, is um, giving that person a temporary disturbance during their NREM sleep, and it would trigger sleep talking. They would give you kind of a funny uh, sleep talk nonsense answer. So yeah, that's just a little uh, personal anecdote there about my experiences with sleep talking, I'm sure. Some of you may have partners or siblings who uh, talk during the middle of the night and it, it's uh, a little bit odd to hear people screaming or talking about nonsense in the middle of the night, but that is just a side effect of what we know as somniloquy. Alright, and question number eight was deriving its name from the Latin word for knowledge what church was founded in 1954 in California by L. Ron Hubbard? And your correct answer is the Church of Scientology is your right answer. The core teaching of Scientology is that every person is actually a spiritual being known as a Thetan, which resides in the physical body and has an innumerable amount of past lives, which means... Those lives may have been on Earth, but they also could have been on extraterrestrial planets living in alien cultures. The spirit is not itself a tangible thing, but rather it is the creator of things. The term Thetan is derived from the Greek letter Theta, which in Scientology represents the source of life or life itself. Scientology differentiates itself from traditional religions in three primary ways, the first of which has to do with the Thetan spirit being a separate entity entirely from the physical body, while many religions fuse the concept of body and soul. Second, unlike typical monotheism, Scientologists believe in past lives that the Thetan has lived through thousands of times. So. Like I said earlier, it's an innumerable amount of lives that the Thetan may have experienced. Um, and third, contrary to concepts such as original sin in Christianity, 
Scientologists believe that the evil in the world has to do with the spiritual essence losing touch with its true nature, which is intrinsically good. So they believe that the spirit itself is intrinsically good, mankind is good and pure, but through um, living life here on earth, you kind of lose touch with the essence of the spirit, and that's when bad things happen, that's when evil trickles into the world. Now in the question it said that L. Ron Hubbard is the one who started Scientology and Mr. Hubbard himself led a fascinating life. He was born in Nebraska in 1911 and as a teen traveled to Asia after his father was placed on a naval base in Guam. He eventually returned to the United States and enrolled in George Washington University to become a civil engineer before dropping out after two years. He ended up as a naval officer in World War II, but was removed from command on both of the ships that he was in charge of. After living primarily on his boats then for a couple of years, Hubbard and others from the Church of Scientology unsuccessfully tried to overthrow the city of Clearwater, Florida in 1978. Yes, really, they tried to overthrow a city. Under the fake name United Churches of Florida, a bunch of Scientologists purchased a hotel in the city for $3 million and used it as a base for planning their takeover. The plan was thwarted though when the FBI got wind of the agenda and raided the hotel, halting the rebellion before it could even begin. Um, now the Church of Scientology continued and eventually Mr. Hubbard passed away. But when he passed away in his luxury mobile home in 1974, Scientology leaders announced that his body had become an impediment to his work and that he had decided to drop his body to continue his research on another planet. Question number nine was, what plant is tequila distilled from? And your correct answer is blue agave. Agave is the right answer. Tequila was first produced in the 16th century near the location of the city of Tequila, which is located in central Mexico. Yes, there is a city named Tequila. Mexicans traditionally drank a fermented beverage known as pulque that was made from blue agave. When the Spanish conquistadors in Mexico ran out of brandy, they mixed the two distillation techniques and ended up making what we now know as tequila. Years later, Don Chinobio Sousa, founder of Sousa Tequila and municipal president of the village of Tequila from 1884 to 1885, was the first to export tequila to the United States. Since that time, there are now over 100 distilleries in Mexico that make over 900 different brands of tequila. In order to be labeled as tequila, the spirit must contain between 35 and 55% alcohol content, but tequila sold in the United States is required to be exactly 40% alcohol or 80 proof. The Tequila Regulatory Council of Mexico originally decided not to permit flavored tequila to carry the tequila name, but in 2004 the council decided to allow flavored tequila to be called tequila except for 100% agave tequila, which still is not allowed to be flavored. Now, I'm sure the thought of flavored tequila is making some of you want to go grab salt and the lime and get to it, and others of you, maybe it's making you feel a little queasy. 
Mexico approved a proposal to mark the third Saturday of every March as National Tequila Day. So for those of you who do enjoy it, mark that down in your calendars so that you can start planning your festivities a little bit early. And that brings us to question 10, which is the last question of this week's podcast. The question was, in the Batman universe, what is the full name of the villain known as Two-Face? And your correct answer is Harvey Dent. Two-Face first appears in Detective Comics number 66, which had a cover date of August 1942. His name in the original comic was Harvey Apollo Kent, but was later changed to just Harvey Dent to avoid an association with Superman's character, Clark Kent. Now, Two-Face is most recognized by the horrible scarring he has on one side of his face, split right down the center. While most fans are familiar with him from his portrayal in The Dark Knight, the comic origin of his scarring is different than the burns that were inflicted in the film. In the comics, Harvey Dent, who was once a Gotham City's district attorney, was scarred on the left side of his face after mob boss Sal Moroni throws acidic chemicals at him during a court trial. After this, he goes insane and adopts the Two-Face persona, becoming a criminal obsessed with the concept of duality as it relates to the conflict between good and evil. He obsessively makes all important decisions by flipping his former lucky charm, a two-headed coin, which was damaged on one side by the acid toss as well. Other comic iterations depict Dent as having an abusive childhood which spurns mental illness in the form of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, paranoia, and disassociative identity disorder, just to name a few. His mentally ill and alcoholic father would beat him regularly, often deciding whether to brutalize him based on the flip of a coin. So in addition to mental illnesses, the abuse sends Dent into a lifelong struggle over the concept of free will that manifests itself through the inability to make choices on his own, thus forcing his dependence on his lucky coin to make all of his decisions. And this also explains why he was so susceptible to going insane and becoming evil after uh, the terrible scarring incident occurred. And yeah, Harvey Dent definitely was a memorable character from The Dark Knight, which is, if you ask me, one of the greatest superhero movies of all time. But it is kind of funny, too, that now his lasting legacy is almost the uh, clip that you might see online sometimes of the Joker walking in uh, dressed as the nurse, taking off his mask. And uh, you see Two-Face sitting there shocked that it's the Joker, but he didn't recognize him when the mask was on. But when the Joker takes his mask off, that's when he recognized him, but it was very clearly the Joker the whole time. So you may have seen that uh, that meme or that little clip floating around there as it relates to the coronavirus and all of us wearing our masks. But that was Two-Face, and that was Harvey Dent. All right, and now that brings us to the end of our show. If you have made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, I would ask you to please review, like, and subscribe or follow the channel if you can. Any feedback from you guys is huge and really helps us to take this podcast to the next level. So like I told you at the beginning of the show, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. I'm going to keep posting content for you guys and I will let you guys know when new episodes will be coming out on those channels so you can follow there. And 
I really also want to hear what you guys want to learn. So at any time, feel free to comment on, on any of ThinkCap's posts. Um, you can tell me a fun fact that you want me to talk about, or you can say, hey, I want to hear about more outer space questions, or hey, I want more MLS questions. It could really be anything. Just comment all that stuff. I love hearing the feedback from you guys, and I'm going to try and fit that into the show itself. So um, thanks again for listening this week. I will catch you next week, next Monday, and take care.